morning, uh, if you have a Bible with you, would you turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1? Gospel of Luke chapter 1. As I mentioned a few moments ago, we are fast approaching Christmas, just 10 days from today's Christmas Day. Christmas, of course, is one of the most significant events on the Christian calendar. The word Christmas, you you will not find the word Christmas in the Bible. Go ahead and look, you won't find it. It, it, It's not there. But it is, of course, Christmas is, of course, the celebration of Jesus' arrival to redeem mankind. And I love it. I'm really, you know, there are some, there are some uh, gatherings of, uh, uh, within Christianity who say it should not be celebrated and just don't even pay much attention to it, if at all. I'm really glad that we do. I'm glad that we lift up the name of Jesus and talk about His birth. But it is the Again, the celebration of Jesus' arrival to redeem mankind. But, here's the thing, it did not begin in Bethlehem. It did not begin in Bethlehem. It was God's plan long before that amazing night in a simple stable. God's plan had been looking forward to that time, anticipating and planning for that time, really for for many centuries, in fact, longer than any of us, I'm sure, can imagine. And while the two persons who were center stage at the beginning of that story, who first went into that stable, the two persons, Mary and Joseph, while they were center stage, if you will, in that story, God used many other people to present Jesus to the world. Really, a considerable number of people. Here are just a few. The the shepherds who on the night in which Jesus was born and the angel appeared to them and called them to come and worship, they were just a few of the people. But God, I believe, even long before Jesus was born, God was preparing them. God was getting other people ready to celebrate what God was doing through the birth of Jesus. There was also a Roman emperor, the Roman Emperor Augustus. He, he was living far to the west in the, the capital city of the Roman Empire, Rome. Augustus was there. He, he had never heard and probably never heard the name of Jesus Christ or the, the name of Jesus and the title of Christ. He probably never heard that in, I'm sure, never heard that in his lifetime, but God was preparing that emperor, most powerful human in a political system in the world at that time. God was getting him ready to present Jesus, to reveal Jesus. There were wise men. Instead of living far to the west like the Roman emperor, these men, the Bible says, were living far to the east. And God was preparing them to be a part of this announcement of the very, very young Jesus. So those are just a few of the people that God was getting ready to reveal His Son to the world. And here in Luke's gospel, there's another family, another family who are, by the way, often overlooked because 
they are mentioned before the birth of Jesus, but there's another family, another group of people that God was preparing to be a part of that amazing tapestry of Jesus' birth. Luke chapter 1, verse 5 reads this way. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Just pause there for a moment with verse 5. We have here these two people, a man named Zechariah. I've never, by the way, I've never met another person named Zechariah. I have, I'm sure that there have been. I've just never met a Zechariah um, and his wife, Elizabeth. Now, I've known a number of Elizabeths in my life, so we still name people that, but you have these two people, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah, it says here, was a priest, and Elizabeth was the descendant of priests. It mentions here that she was a descendant of Aaron. Aaron, this is going back about 1,500 years before this time. Aaron was Moses's brother. He was the one who was appointed by God to be a priest over the people, and then all of his descendants were to also be a part of the priestly line. So what we actually have here is both Zechariah and Elizabeth descended from the same person. They eventually, within this extremely large group of people, this family, the descendants of Aaron, they met, they came together. So verse 5 talks about uh, a title, and it talks about a, a really a pretty illustrious heritage, something that was beyond themselves because Zechariah was of this priestly tribe. He just kind of automatically became a priest, and she was also descended from priests. I point that out. It's important later on. More importantly, verse 6 describes their spiritual condition. It reads this way, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. If verse 5 talks about title and talks about ancestry and talks about lineage, verse 6 um, speaks about something far more important, and that is a person's heart. You know, I've found, maybe you found this as well, a lot of people can have a title, but their title does not always match their heart. Some people don't have a title, but their heart is really, really good. These people were not righteous because he was a priest and she was descended from priests. They were righteous because they trusted God. Now understand, these were not Christians. There were no Christians at this point. Jesus had not been born, yet been born. Jesus would not die on that cross for another 33 years after that. So there were no Christians. Christianity was not a thing yet. But these were people who with the limited light that they had, trusted God and honored God and were extremely devoted to God. They were righteous people. That's a heart condition. So if verse 5 is a family tree, statement. Verse 6 reveals much more about them. It reveals their heart. Again, it says they were righteous in God's sight and they observed the Lord's commands and his decrees blamelessly. They were righteous people. They walked with God. And then verse 7. Verse 7 describes some of the, <laughs> some of the real life challenges that these people had endured and were enduring. It says this, 
But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Now that's just one sentence. Verse 7 is just one sentence, and it's relatively brief, but it says a great deal, doesn't it? That one verse reveals a great deal. First of all, they had no children. These people had come from a, a, a really uh, impressive line of people, but it was going to stop with them. It also says in verse 7 that Elizabeth was unable to conceive. You know, isn't it interesting how we, we see these lines and we forget that there's a lot of, at least in their case, a lot of pain associated with it. It's just a statement of fact, but what it doesn't reveal is the heartache that preceded it or accompanied that statement. And then it says they were up in years. Which means that they had probably accepted that having a child was not to be. So you have these two people, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who have a great family story preceding them, but there would not be one following them. There's a lot there. I also need to point out this pretty basic fact and maybe give a little bit of explanation to it. The writer of this gospel, Luke, that's why we call it Luke, Luke's gospel, by profession was a physician. He was a doctor. I point that out because Luke often identifies in his gospel, he identifies physical things or physical characteristics that other gospel writers did not. They would talk, he, he, he referred, uh, especially later on, like with Jesus leading up to the cross, his, his, uh, his beating, uh, the things that he endured preceding the cross and on the cross, he goes into greater detail, a physician would do that. Luke here points out that these people could not conceive a child and that they were up in years. When he, he, but he also, please understand, he also makes it clear that their physical condition was not the result of their spiritual condition. As we saw in verse 6, it says they were righteous and they obeyed God's commands. That they were righteous people, right with God people. And then in verse 7, it says that they could not have children, and they did not have children. You see, at this time, under Jewish tradition, the Jewish tradition at the time, and probably other traditions as well, viewed, viewed barrenness as a result of someone's disobedience. That God, in His great plan, said, be fruitful and multiply. So therefore, it was assumed by many at the time that if you therefore could not have children, that it must be some kind of a curse upon you. And so Luke goes to great pains to say in verse 6, these were godly people. These were righteous people. But they were also facing a physical situation that brought hardship and difficulty to their lives. He makes it very clear that these things were not associated. Now, let me be very clear on something. 
The Bible also says later on in the New Testament that sickness can be the result of disobedience. It mentions this a couple of times. But be very, very careful. While some physical conditions can result because of people's disobedience to God, not every physical condition is a result of disobedience to God. You know, sometimes when we see people going through, I don't know if you've ever done this, I'm going to be the first to admit I've done this. When somebody goes through something very difficult or very painful or very tragic, sometimes we are, when we hear that about them, we're quick to say, well, I know why that happened, because they did this. No, I, I don't know if that's the case or not. We leave that up to the Lord, but I know this. Don't always say that what happens to a person is because of their disobedience. God may have another plan for them. And sometimes when we just project that onto someone else and say, well, that's happened to them because they walked away from God or because there's sin in their life or we may not see anything, but there must be something wrong with them. We leave that to the Lord. And also, let me just add this. Some of you right now are saying, God, is there some, I, I can't, there's something wrong in my body or there's something wrong in my, in my home or there's something wrong at my work. There's something wrong. It, it must be because there's something wrong in my heart. Well, the first thing that we do is we, we come to the Lord, we, we lay ourselves before Him but we leave that to God. It's a matter of the heart. So he makes this very clear. And then verses 8 and 9 tell us that Zechariah, as a priest, was chosen to go into the temple in Jerusalem, into the outer place to burn incense. Now, uh, there's a lot to this. They're still under this Mosaic law the system, the Jewish system of kind of covering over for our sins, but not ever forgiving them. And, and this was a part of the, the uh, annual celebration, actually a couple of times a year, where this would happen. And it says here that Zechariah, as a priest, was chosen to be one of those to go not into the inner part of the, of the temple, into the most holy place or the holy of holies, but to the room just outside of this. This was a very high honor as a priest to do this, and it was also something to be taken extremely seriously. These people were dressed perfectly. These people would go through a great system uh, and protocol of preparation before they went in because the concern was, in fact, Scripture says in the Old Testament that if they didn't take it seriously, they could be struck dead while they were ministering to the Lord inside the temple. Zechariah was one of those who was chosen to go in, not to the inner holy of holies, but to the partition just next to it. A very serious and a very honored role. Verses 10 and 11 now read this way. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all of the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah standing at the right side of the altar of incense. I want you to imagine this for a moment. 
Zechariah has received this great honor. He's very excited and yet a little bit fearful because he knows that if he doesn't take this seriously and if something goes wrong, he could be struck dead. So he prepares everything. The day comes, the beginning starts, he walks into this inner chamber, everyone else is out praying, and just as he gets in and he's ready to light the incense, suddenly it says, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Can you imagine how that would scare the liver right out of you? Picture that. He's serious about this. He's very devoted to this. And suddenly in all of the plans, an angel of the Lord. We find out later, by the way, that this is the angel Gabriel. This is, this is the guy who's going to blow the horn someday. He shows up right then, right there. That's why I think verse 12 is an understatement. I really do. It says, when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. Actually, I think he gripped his left side and, and started twitching. That's what I would do. He's terrified. He's more than just startled. He's probably never had an angelic appearance, especially when it coincides with, coincides with such an important event. What he didn't know. What Zechariah didn't know. In fact, what Zechariah couldn't know is that this would soon become one of the most significant moments of his life. This was going to be a game changer. Everything changed with this divine meeting. Verse 13, the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. As I mentioned a moment ago, in just a very, very short time, Zechariah's entire world was changed. <laughs> And, 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 and in the moments and hours following when he shared the news with Elizabeth, his wife, her life too would be changed. After just one message from God, his life, their lives would never be the same. It was an amazing moment. It was an amazing God moment. God sent his messenger. That's what angels are. God sent his messenger to give this message to Zechariah and his wife. Now, let me tell you, there's more to this story. You can read it later. But later on in this chapter, Elizabeth would visit a relative of hers. A, rel a distant relative of hers, of Elizabeth's, was a woman named... <laughs> Mary. 
Now Mary, you probably know something about. Mary also was expecting a child. In fact, it says that when Elizabeth, carrying her baby within her, came into the presence of the room which held Mary, who held Jesus within her, it says the the little baby within Elizabeth leaped for joy. <laughs> and then, two chapters and 30 years later, it records the ministry of that baby. He's all grown up and he's referred to as John the baptizer, or John the Baptist. That little boy promised by an angel to a priest in the, in, in the outer room of this temple, grew up and did all that the angel said he would do. He was preparing the way for Jesus the Messiah. What an amazing master plan. It was, it was more than just that starlit night with a stable, but God was using other people to make it all happen. But for our purposes this morning, I want you to again see the angel's opening statement. Look back at verse 13. It reads this way. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, the angel said. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. See that? See that last line? Your prayer has been heard. You know, I, I, have, read, I have read this account. By the way, there are really only two accounts of Jesus' birth and, and, the, and the moments leading up to that. And it's, uh, it's in Matthew and in Luke. There, there's... I, I wish there were more, but that's all we're supposed to know. But I've read this, because of that, I've read this through more times than I can count. But I never noticed those words until recently. It says, your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. I don't know if you underline in your Bibles, if you do, that's a good line. It says, your prayers have been heard. It's not there just for record. Serve for us. Your prayers have been heard. Again, Zechariah and Elizabeth, this is an assumption. I think it's a safe assumption. I think that, that Zechariah and Elizabeth, because of their age, had probably stopped praying for a child sometime before. In fact, later on, shortly after this, after the angel made this declaration, Zechariah asked the angel how having a child was even possible because of their advanced age. He, he, he saw the timeline and he, he understood that the time for having babies was past, long past. But for a long time, for a long time, certainly months, Undoubtedly for years, maybe even for decades, this man named Zechariah, this godly man named Zechariah, and this godly woman named Elizabeth had sought God in prayer for something that only he could provide. And it says here 
that God heard their prayers. God heard their prayers. I was talking with Laverne Keese yesterday on the phone. Totally unrelated. She didn't know I was going to preach on this. but Laverne made this great comment. She says, you know, she said, uh, God answers prayer, but sometimes you have to wait a while. That is true, Laverne. Isn't that true? God answers prayer, but sometimes you have to wait. <laughs> but God heard their prayers. All of those years before, God heard it. You ever been in a place where you've been praying for something, trusting God for something, and you bring it to the Lord? Oh, Lord, would you allow me to do this? Oh, Lord, would you make this happen? Oh, Lord, if it's your will, can, can this come about? Oh, God, can you use me in this way? Oh, God, will you heal me? Oh, God, will you provide? God, somehow, will, will you do something that this limited person could never do? You ever, you ever prayed that? And then, and then it doesn't happen. And you pray it and nothing happens. And, but, but you feel like you're supposed to keep praying. And so you, you pray and you feel directed to pray. You feel compelled to pray. And, and, and it's like you can't help but not pray, but you keep praying and it doesn't happen. And a month goes by and six months and 12 months and a couple of years and then even sometimes a couple of decades and you keep praying. Sometimes you wonder, God, can you hear me? It says here, it says here, verse 13, your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. The creator of the universe, the one who is all-powerful and all-knowing and ever-present and unchanging, he had heard their prayers. He didn't forget and he was now answering their prayers. You need to know this. It's very important. The name Zechariah, right? I mentioned earlier, eh, who names their kid Zechariah? It's a pretty good name because here's what it means. It re- the, 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 the name Zechariah means the Lord remembers. Isn't that neat? The man's name means the Lord remembers. Oh, and the name Elizabeth? Name Elizabeth? Some of you are named Elizabeth or Eliza or Eliza or Beth. It's a variation, all of the name Elizabeth. It means God's oath. God's oath. I can't help but notice that, that Zechariah, God remembers, the Lord remembers, God remembered every prayer. And Elizabeth, God's oath, on that day through an angel, God made an oath, this is what's going to happen. It's not by accident, by God's plan. Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
When Zechariah and Elizabeth prayed for those many years for a child, maybe for even decades when they prayed and when they saw it and when they came before God again and again, they didn't know, they couldn't know that the child God would give them would be the one who would prepare the way for Jesus. They just wanted a baby. They didn't care, boy, girl, twins, triplets, we just want a baby. We want a baby to hold and teach and grow up and give us grandbabies. Continue the family line. Somebody to, that's, that's what they were, they didn't know, couldn't know that what they were praying for, the child that they prayed for would go on to be the one who would present Jesus to the world in his public ministry. They didn't know, they couldn't know that the child for whom they prayed for months and for years and maybe decades would be the one who would himself baptize Jesus, the Son of God. They didn't know, they couldn't know that the child that they prayed for would go on and would someday stand before a king and say, you're in sin and you need to repent. They didn't know, they couldn't know that their son would turn the hearts of many to repentance to God and he would be known as the baptizer. They didn't know, they couldn't know that their son one day would give his life for truth and his head would be separated from his shoulders and served on a platter. They didn't know, they couldn't know when they prayed, what they were praying for. But you know what? I'm glad they prayed. I'm glad they prayed. Didn't mean probably a whole lot to, uh, much to anyone else at that time. It meant something to them. But now, 20 centuries later, really glad they prayed. I'm grateful that they kept on praying. That they didn't stop. That they kept interceding. I'm so very grateful that every day they got up and they would pray and they would say, God, one more time I'm asking. God, one more time I'm asking. One more time I'm asking. One more time we stand before you, Father, and we pray for a child. God, give us a child. I'm glad they kept on praying. And I'm glad that God heard and that God remembered and that God made an oath and that God kept his oath. I'm so grateful for that. Now here's a question for you. Here it is. Are you ready? Here it is. What are you praying for? What are you praying for? What are you praying for? How long have you been praying? How committed are you to taking that thing that the Lord has placed on your heart? How faithful have you been to keep bringing it back to God? Saying, Lord, here I am again. I pray for this again. You think, you may think, ah, oh, you know, this it's not that really not that big of a deal. It does just, it just really. We don't know the significance of the things that we pray for. We don't know what God can do with that thing for which we pray. But God does. 
Again, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they had no idea that God would use that child for whom they prayed. You have no idea what God desires to do in you and through you for that thing for which you are praying. What are you praying for? What are you praying for? What are you trusting God with? With your whole being. God gave us this wonderful gift called prayer. We take it for granted. Sometimes we're flippant. We think, well, God knows I don't need to pray. Or he's so big and I'm so small, so why even do it? Or, well, it's optional. It's, you know, I'll pray over a meal. I'll pray for my kids if they're sick. I'll pray for God to protect us if we travel. But beyond that, not a whole lot. Listen, God has given us this wonderful ability called, this wonderful tool, this wonderful weapon of warfare called prayer, and He desires us to use it. So I'm going to ask again, what are you praying for? Who are you praying for? What has God placed upon your heart? To intercede. Intercede is a strong word. It means it's a very intense prayer. It's a very devoted prayer. What are you praying for? A few weeks ago, I briefly mentioned that I'm going to do something at the beginning of this new year Unless the Lord has returned in the next two or three weeks, the Lord has put it on my heart to the beginning of the next year that I've, I've never called anyone to do as a pastor. I've been, I've been a pastor for, um, I think, 29, almost 29 years, a lead pastor, and I've never done this. Uh, maybe in some cases because of a misuse, but never felt prompted to do it, but I felt this very strongly about six months ago. And that is the first three weeks of January to call the people of our church to a holy fast. Beginning on January 5th and going through January 26th, I would ask you to consider, for I cannot force and I will not force. I, I don't do that. I, that's silly. I, but to call you to over the next few weeks say, Lord, I want to fast and pray. Fasting simply means putting something, usually food, but it can be something else, putting something aside to spend more time in prayer, concentrated and focused prayer for someone or for something. So, that's three weeks from now. Would you, over the next couple of weeks, would you be praying, Lord, Am I to take part in that? We won't, we, we're not going to have a sign-up sheet. I am not going to know if you, uh, only, only if you 
choose to share it with someone. We will not have we will not we will not have any kind of a public declaration of who is or who isn't. But I would like you to consider trusting God in a way perhaps like you've never trusted him before and to say Lord for 3 weeks beginning on that Sunday if it doesn't work for them choose another day but beginning on that Sunday Lord, for the next three weeks, I'm going to put this aside. Some will, some will do a, a, a full fast, no food for, for three weeks. Instead, the time spent in preparation of food, eating of food, cleaning up after food. In, instead, we set that and we go off and we pray and we seek God for something. For others, it may be what's called a Daniel fast. We see this example in the book of Daniel where Daniel set aside certain meats and he ate fruits and vegetables he and others, for a period of time. It's called the Daniel Fast. You, can, you, you have three weeks now to do this. Some, some of you may need to say, all right, uh, you know, I'm just going to set aside all media for three weeks, and, and the time that I spend watching that or doing that or playing that, I'm just going to set that aside for three weeks, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press in with God, and I'm going to trust Him with something like I've never trusted Him before. You see, I believe that the Holy Spirit can even take this message this morning and, and bring it forward and say, all right, Lord, I, I know I'm supposed to do that. So in the next three weeks, I want you to be praying about how God will use you in fasting and in prayer, something that almost every person in the Bible that was greatly used of God did. I want you to consider doing that for the three weeks then following. Some of you cannot, should not fast from, from food for one reason or another. But God can, and, and here's what I want you to do. Say, God, I don't even know what I'm supposed to be praying for, but you do. And I'm going to put myself in a position to be hearing from you and obedient to you and to trust you unlike I've ever trusted you before. See, I believe that God, what God did in Zechariah and, and Elizabeth all those years ago, he wants to do again. Now, don't misunderstand that. You are, there, there's only one Jesus. There was only one incarnation. There's, there's only that. But, but God used someone else who was instrumental in the birth of Jesus Christ. And I believe that God wants to use people here in unique and in powerful ways that will affect not just you for three weeks, but others for generations. And if we are obedient to God and say, Lord, I'm not exactly sure what I'm supposed to pray for, but I believe in the next three weeks you will reveal that and to pray that. Now one more thing and then we're gonna, we're gonna close. This, this is from experience Every time that God has called me to some kind of a fast, he has given me one very, very clear thing that I was supposed to fast and pray for. But then partway through or almost at the very end, I find out that I was fasting and praying for something else as well. And often the something else was more important to others than what was happening before, or that what I went in knowing. 
So I want you to do this. This is, this is going to, not an experiment by any means, because it's already proven. We see this throughout the Bible. But for some of you, it's going to be the first time, and I'm, I'm challenging you as your pastor, if you're a part of this church, and maybe even if you're a guest here today, the Lord's stirring you through this message to set aside some time and, 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 and use this wonderful ability that God has given us to seek Him in prayer. And so, so I'm calling you to this. And I believe that the results are going to be life-changing, not only for you, but for many, many others. I say, God, what you did here in Luke chapter 1, do it again. Do it again. Do it again through us. Would you stand with me? Again, three weeks from today, we're going to begin this. There's going to be a lot of, ha- lot, lot of things happening between now and then. But uh, I, I wanted to place this before you allow you to, to begin praying over this and, and, and trusting God for really amazing and unprecedented things. So in our time as we close now, I want to ask God's blessing upon you. Again, some of you are going to be traveling over the next couple of weeks. I want to pray God's protection on you, and, and, I, and I want to pray His blessing upon you as you're with family or with friends. Uh, but, but I also want to pray that God will just birth something in our hearts in these coming weeks. All right, so would you bow your heads with me? Lord, I thank you for my brothers and for my sisters who are here today. I thank you, Lord, for the celebration that this has been of what you have done in our lives. I thank you for the celebration that will be happening shortly, Lord, as we baptize some people who have have surrendered their lives to you. I ask also, Jesus, that in these coming weeks you will birth things within us, that you will put things into our hearts for which we will to pray, that we we will fast and pray, and, and Lord, that you will even begin to plant in our hearts something that we don't know that we're going to pray about, uh, but we'll see it partway through. So Lord, do it again. I ask your blessing upon these people as they travel. Protect them in planes and in trains and in cars. And, and Lord, protect them in, on boats, however means of transportation. I ask that you'll guard them and that you'll keep them and that you'll give them a blessed time as we celebrate again your first coming. And as we look forward to your second coming, Lord, use us for your glory. Plant it deep in our hearts. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. Go in the presence and the power, the celebration of Jesus Christ.